Now let us turn to our sermon passage for this morning, which we find in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. The Apostle Paul, having shortly declared the glory of the gospel, turns rather suddenly, perhaps in our understanding at first to the wrath of God. Hear now what he says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes (coughs) are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Amen. As we consider this passage, please be seated. Perhaps it does seem strange to you that going from the power of God's grace in the gospel and the righteousness of Christ given to us to clothe us in that beauty, transitioning suddenly to the wrath of God. Why is that? What is the connection here? And there is a connection. Notice the Apostle Paul says, for the wrath of God is revealed. What he says next is used to support and explain what he has just said. In fact, from verse 18 of our passage, chapter 1, all the way to Romans 3, verse 20, we find the same theme established. The sinfulness of man and the wrath of God that is against that sinfulness. For this long section, then, the Apostle Paul is supporting and explaining what he has just said about the beauty and glory of the gospel. But how can that be? Because when he spoke of the power of God to salvation and the righteousness of God in the gospel, he meant that was the only way of salvation. He meant that only by the power of God, only by the righteousness of Christ can we be saved. And he goes on to prove, then, that it cannot be otherwise. The other religion, besides that of grace, is that of works. We either trust in God as the gracious God who can change us and who can provide righteousness for us, or we say that we have the strength and power to achieve these things on our own. We can attain the righteousness of God. And so the Apostle Paul makes clear that is impossible, that we must rather 
trust in the power of God's grace and the righteousness of Christ and not in ourselves, because if we do, we are condemned under the wrath of God. The very final verse of this section makes that clear. Therefore, (coughs) by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And so he is making clear to the saints in Rome and to us that what he said about the gospel is the only way. There is no other. And anyone who pursues his own righteousness before God or seeks to save himself before God is condemned under the wrath of God. There is but one hope for salvation, and that is in the power of God's grace and the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. That is a connection, and that is what the Apostle Paul then labors to demonstrate to us this morning. We'll look at this passage under two parts. The first is verse 18, the wrath of God, and then verses 19 through 23, the perversity of ungodliness. So Paul is proving that we must trust in Christ's righteousness as those changed by the power of God's grace, or we face the wrath of God, which is revealed (coughs) from heaven. But what exactly is the wrath of God? We often use such terms, no doubt, but what is God's wrath exactly? John Murray explains it well when he says, Wrath is a holy revulsion of God's being against that which is a contradiction of His holiness. God's wrath is seen in His being against and finding loathsome and finding uh, horrid sin. And He executes judgment then against that which He finds so offensive in us. God's wrath is that which breaks out against us in our sin, demonstrating that He is holy, and He cannot tolerate anything that is unholy, that is contrary to His character. We find the wrath of God throughout the Scriptures revealed to us because we understand that His character is so pure and holy that there can be no compromise, that there can be no exception, that when He looks upon us as sinners, He sees something that is revolting to Him, that is odious, that is disgusting, and He must respond with equitable judgment and condemnation of it for Him to remain holy and pure. And so He does. And we see it throughout human history, this wrath of God revealed in various ways. We see it in the fall of man when he declared a curse against sin, therefore. A curse that led to the entire creation groaning, as Paul says later in Romans chapter 8. A curse that brought thorns into this land. A curse that brought sickness and death into this world. And every time you see, therefore, at a funeral, someone who has died, you have experienced but a taste of the wrath of God revealed. Every time you you prick your finger on a thorn, you have experienced just a small taste of the wrath of God revealed. Every time you are sick, you are experiencing a short, small taste of the wrath of God. 
Any time there is a storm with thunder and lightning that is majestic and ominous, you are experiencing the wrath of God. Throughout this world, in various ways, all the time and everywhere, really, we see the wrath of God revealed to us. <clears throat> but of course, ultimately, the true wrath of God <coughs> will be revealed to us in hell. We see that hell really is the epitome and the fullness of God's wrath. It is not the mere taste of it, it is the outpouring of it. God only responds with equity against sin, and hell demonstrates the true heinousness, therefore, of sin, where the fire is not quenched and the worm never dies, where men are tormented day and night without rest. This is the reality of how heinous and offensive and repulsive our sin is to God. And he demonstrates his wrath throughout the world from time to time in equity and judgment against it. And the Apostle Paul takes this for granted that we understand it. He doesn't even try to argue it. He says, you all know that. Everyone sees the wrath of God everywhere. Even unbelievers can say there's something wrong in this world because they see the wrath of God being poured out in various ways. We understand that the wrath of God is clearly revealed in the creation. But it is especially aimed at men. We read of that in verse 18, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. <clears throat> Here the Apostle Paul then goes on to speak of the object of God's wrath in particular because it is our sin that has brought the curse of God upon this world. It is our sin <clears throat> that deserves the wrath of God. And notice... He uses two particular terms to describe that sin, which is really two particular categories of sin that he has in view here. <clears throat> Ungodliness and unrighteousness. We know that this is two categories he has in mind, both because of the terms he uses and then how he begins to extrapolate upon them and to explain what he means by them. The term for ungodliness literally refers to not worshipful or not reverent. <clears throat> it has the negation of worship in view. In Mark's gospel, uh, the Lord accuses the Pharisees of worshiping contrary to his law and by their own standards. And that word he uses for worship is a word we have here, except it is negated, not worship. They don't even try to worship. They're not worshiping God as they ought. They're not showing him the reverence and honor that is due to him. And then the second term, therefore, refers to the unrighteousness of men, meaning the immorality or the ways we sin against each other. The Apostle Paul is, you see, following the order of the Ten Commandments. The first four are about how we worship and honor God, and the last six about how we 
interact with man and how we have morality upon this earth and an ethical action towards others. And you see then, this is how he deals with it. In our passage, in verses uh, 20 to 23, he speaks especially of idolatry as uh, one of the key examples of ungodliness. And then in verses 24 and following, he speaks of homosexuality as one of the key examples of immorality or unrighteousness. And so here he is dividing out sin into two parts, into two categories, following the Ten Commandments, and then fleshing out what he means with regard to these sins. And so the first one we deal with today is ungodliness or an irreverence or lack of worship and honor towards God. And these two are connected. In fact, the the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments are first because they are most important, and they are first because they are necessarily there before the others. What I mean is this. You cannot commit immorality unless you first have not honored God as you should. If we are perfectly honoring the Lord and worshiping Him and glorifying Him as we ought, We'll never commit any immorality. We'll never commit any sin. It is first a failure to honor and reverence and fear the Lord as we ought that leads to necessarily the commission of immorality, the commission of unrighteousness against others. This is why as we live in a society that is increasingly denying God and His worship and His honor, increasingly rejecting Him and refusing to honor Him, we should expect that it will increasingly become immoral as well. The atheists a time ago decided that they would raise up this campaign that says, "...good without God." And in this campaign, they were arguing, you can be good without believing in God. Well, here the Lord puts the lie upon that. Ungodliness is first. It leads to unrighteousness necessarily. And so here we have the Apostle Paul connecting these two and then explicating one at a time. The first one in our passage. But it is important to recognize for ourselves as well that if we have committed any immorality, if we have failed to honor authority as we ought, if we have become angry without cause, if we have committed any sort of sexual sin, if we have lied for any reason, if we have coveted anything at all, it is because we have first failed to honor and fear God as we ought. The Apostle Paul makes this point later on in chapter 3 when he describes the wickedness of man in the most unpleasant of terms. His feet are swift to shed blood. The poison of an asp is under his tongue. And how does he end that statement? The same way Psalm 14 that he is quoting ends that statement. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. What is it that led this to this immorality, to this sinfulness, to this killing and harming of others, it is that they did not fear God. And so if we sin in any way against others, it is because first we did not fear God. And yet here we find in our passage as well that these same 
men of all ungodliness and unrighteousness suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That is, they suppress the truth in a sinful manner. What does it mean to suppress the truth? Well, children, here I will address you especially. Have you ever gone, as my own children have, to Stephen's Garden, Stephen's Lake uh, Gardens, and there you have seen, uh, in the summertime at least, these springs that shoot up from the ground near that pond? And have you ever played in those springs? And one of the games perhaps you've played was to try to push down those springs as they came up from the ground and try to make sure they didn't come up. Now, my children claim they have done this. I doubt that they really have, but they claim they've done this. But how difficult is it to press down that water so that it doesn't come up at all? Not a drop is leaking. And imagine further that instead of just these small little spouts of water, the whole ocean was rushing up through those holes, bursting out. And you were called upon to make sure it didn't and to push it down. It's impossible, isn't it? It will simply come spurting out somewhere. You cannot fully suppress that sort of pressurized water. Well, that is what men try to do nonetheless. They know God. And they try to press down that knowledge in their hearts and minds that they will not know him, that they will not need to follow him. But to eradicate the truth is to eradicate everything, because everything declares God. You see, that is what the Apostle Paul says next as we turn to our second point in verses 19 through 23. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. What he is saying here is that what is known of God is manifest in them. Now, later on in the book of Romans, in chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, we read there of the conscience of man and how it testifies of either good or evil deeds. Is that what the Apostle Paul has in view here? Again, the the inward creation and design of man that testifies to God? I don't think that's what he has in view here, because he's saying that this inward understanding is because of the outward objective reality. In other words, what he is saying is, it is manifest in them because God has shown it to them in creation. Because they have seen the world and perceived in their minds and hearts a reality, there is a God. How can it be otherwise? When we look upon the creation, we perceive in ourselves there must be a God who has created these things. There is no other valid explanation. This must be it. And so he's saying, in their own hearts and minds, they know the truth because it is so evident in the creation, they cannot help but see it for themselves. And therefore it takes a a colossal effort, a maniacal zeal, to press down this knowledge of God and to suppress it. It is impossible to do entirely. 
but men are desperately seeking to do it and to deny what is obvious and evident everywhere they look. Since God created the world, everything reveals God. Now, there are some experts in artwork who can look at a certain piece and say, that's a Picasso or Rembrandt or whatever it is, and they recognize in that piece the the personality of the artist, and they recognize a skill or they recognize a style, and so they're able to say that one was created by this man or this person. But you don't need to be an expert to look upon the world and know it is created by God because there's no one else who could do it. There is no competition. There is no one else that you might say, I'm not sure if this was God or or whom. There is no one besides God comparable to the Lord. He alone is the one who can make this world. He alone is the creator. You don't have to be an expert to see it. It is undeniably clear and obvious to all men. But not just in general terms, but particular characteristics of God are mentioned here. His eternal power, for example. If you talk to those who believe in evolution, sometimes they will say this to you when you ask, well, where did material come from? Where did matter come from? And they'll say, well, I think it was always here. I think it is eternal. But then they'll go on to say, but at some point there was this powerful event that brought together those elements and dispersed them into what we now see as the world. In other words, even those who deny God cannot explain creation except with eternity and power. And the Lord is saying, it is his eternal power that is obvious and evident. There has to be some eternality behind this creation, and there has to be some power. And he says, it is not what men foolishly attribute to matter, which is degrading. How can it be eternal? It is not simply some random act of power that brought forth this grand design and beauty and glory we see everywhere. It is the eternal power of God that even atheists and those who deny God recognize is necessary for there to be a creation. It is so obvious to all, the eternal power of God. But not only that, then he says, and his Godhead, his divinity, everything about him that declares him to be God. Now, God is invisible, We cannot see him with our human eye. So how can uh, Paul say, but you see the Godhead in creation? How can you see something invisible in the visible? But even you children know this too, don't you? Have you ever said to your mom and dad, hey, look at the wind outside? And have they said, you can't see the wind? Or have they said, oh, yes, I see it too. Because I see the effects of it. I see the leaves rustling. I see some of the dust and dirt being stirred up, perhaps. I see the wind in what it produces in this creation. Likewise, we see God in his handiwork and what he has made in this creation. We see his divinity clearly 
everywhere. We see his goodness in the beautiful colors he has made and and the, the wonderful taste and experiences he gives to us in this earth. We see his wisdom in the intricate design of everything to the smallest part of this creation. We see his grand power and glory as we contemplate the vastness of the universe, which is mind-blowing truly. Or stand upon the edge of the beach and look out over the ocean and think how majestic, how grand it is. Or on a mountaintop or wherever it is. We see the wrath of God, as we have said, everywhere as well. We see the character and the nature of God in His handiwork everywhere, all the time. And so the Lord is saying, how perverse is it then when men deny God? It is not merely blind faith. It is worse. It is pig-headed recalcitrance. Let me put it to you this way. Let us say you and I were in a dispute. I said you borrowed one of my books and didn't return it. And you said you neither borrowed it nor then had occasion to return it. But I was certain and we argued back and forth. And finally you said, come with me. And you took me to my office and you pulled out the volume in question on my bookshelf and showed it to me. And I said, I still think you borrowed it and haven't returned it. That's what men do when they look on creation and God says, see, I exist. I am. You can see in this work of creation, my handiwork everywhere. And men say, no, I don't see that at all. The famous atheist Bertrand Russell, when asked if you do happen to find yourself before the judgment seat of God that you don't believe in, of course. What will you say to him? His famous words were, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. You see, the Lord is clear so that men are without excuse at the end of verse 20. There is no excuse. The creation shouts loudly as we sang from Psalm 19, the glory of God everywhere. His eternal power and Godhead are seen so that men are without excuse. And if they deny God, it is not mere blind faith. It is stubborn rebellion against God. But they even go further than this. For they exchange the glory of God for themselves and other creatures. Notice in verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. All men know God, and that knowledge demands a response namely to glorify Him as God and be thankful to Him. To say of God, you are God and not we ourselves. You are the glorious Creator, the I Am, the All-Sufficient One, and we are the needy, desperate creatures who depend upon You for all things. And we honor You as glorious 
and declare our thankfulness that you have made us even, and that you in your grace condescend to care for us. We ought to honor God as God, which means giving him our entire being, giving to him our heart, mind, soul, and strength in devotion to him. This is how we honor God as God. He is worthy of everything. How often do we fail then to honor God as God? Or as a semi-God, perhaps? We'll give some. We'll listen to some of your word. We'll give some of our attention to honoring you. Or will we give all of it? As the chief end of man, the grand driving purpose of man to glorify and enjoy God forever, will we give our hearts, minds, souls, and strength to the glorifying of God as he is worthy because he is God? Well, that is the question for us, but many have answered that question with a resounding no. They would rather suppress the truth so that their thoughts become vain and their hearts are darkened because if you deny your purpose, if you deny the meaning of life, which is to glorify God, it is necessarily the case that what you think is vain and empty and meaningless. And if you try to extinguish the light of the knowledge of God, then it is necessarily the case that your hearts will become darkened because you do not know God who brings enlightenment, because you do not acknowledge God, which is the very meaning and purpose of your life. How many then are out in the world denying God, and therefore their hearts are darkened and their minds are vain in their thoughts. And yet at the same time, what are we told? They declare themselves to be wise. Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. Literally, this is asserting to be wise, they were fools. And the greatest folly was the assertion that they were wise. Now, you children may remember as well the book, The Emperor's New Clothing, one of my favorite books of children's genre. And in this book, these charlatans, these liars, came and told the emperor that they're weaving for him this grand new robe, and, and only wise people can see this robe. And of course, they weren't weaving anything. There was nothing there. But the emperor, wanting to profess himself wise said, oh yes, I see it, it's beautiful. And eventually he goes parading down the streets in nothing. And everyone wanting to profess themselves wise said, yes, yes, wow, look at that garment. That's never seen that before, it's wonderful. Until a simple young boy pointed out he's naked and shattered the delusion. And everyone recognized what a fool the emperor was in professing himself to be wise. He became a fool. Such is the world that denies God. They are, in essence, saying, we see great wisdom. And we as Christians are trying to point out, no, you're naked. Come to Jesus Christ for clothing. You're naked. You have nothing. Come to the Lord and be filled. 
The world declares itself to be wise, but rather is made fools, even by the declaration of wisdom. And even further, they changed in the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and forfeited animals and creeping things. They commit idolatry. They are so perversely foolish that they exchange God for creatures, the incorruptible for the corruptible. The Lord God is incorruptible. He cannot change. He cannot degrade. He is pure life. He is unbounded glory. He is the I Am, meaning He is self-existing and self-perpetuating God. He is seen in the the bush that was aflame and the fire and all its vibrancy and energy and strength was there, but it didn't need any fuel. It was in and of itself bright and glorious and powerful. That is God. There is no change in Him. There is no waning of His power. There is no degrading of His being. He is pure and glorious and always will be. And then there's a creature, there's man, and even worse than the creatures we're supposed to have dominion over who are lower than us. What are we? What is man and the son of man that the Lord would even take notice of us? We are degrading creatures. We are breaking down daily. We are weak. We get sick. We die. We are dependent. We are needy. We are sinners and offensive to God. We are all that is corruptible. And yet we look upon God in all of His glory and we say, you know what would look better there? Me. Or maybe that cow over there. As the Israelites put the golden calf in the place of God. Or maybe that snake as even the Israelites again put that bronze snake in the place of God and worshipped it. That is idolatry, and it is most foolish when we have any concept of who God is and who we are. But men commit it all the time, and so do we. We may not make these images and bow down to them literally. You may not have in your home some animal or a picture of yourself and candles in front of it or whatever. But remember what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3, 5. Covetousness, which is idolatry. Because whenever we want something more than God, it is idolatry. It is to put our corruptible affections above God and His glory. It is but the object of desire above God and His glory. Even covetousness is idolatry because we are putting in the place of God's glory our desire, in the place of God's honor, some object. How often then do we commit this idolatry? How often do we exchange the glory of God for what we want, for something that is corruptible. The world is filled with idolatry. The wrath of God is declared against it everywhere. 
That is the point the Apostle Paul makes here in our passage, and there is no excuse for man. But there is hope. Not in man's own righteousness, not in man somehow trying by his own strength to change himself and to achieve the standard of God's righteousness, no. But there is hope not in ourselves, but in the power of of God and the righteousness of God as revealed in the gospel of grace. In ourselves, we are perverse sinners who suppress the truth and refuse to glorify God and proclaim ourselves to be wise. We can never attain the standard of God and His righteousness. We stand condemned under God's wrath. But in Christ... In Christ, by the power of God's grace, we are made new creatures who glorify God as God and are thankful to Him. In Christ, we are the righteousness of God before Him, clothed in that righteousness of Christ, most acceptable and pleasing to God. Praise God, if you are driven out of yourself by the power of God's grace, to by faith receive the righteousness of Christ. For there is no other hope of salvation save in this gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our fathers, we come before you now. We acknowledge that if we were to come before you in and of ourselves, we would be loathsome. But you, O Lord, we pray and we know that you have clothed us in the righteousness of Christ and therefore ask that you would accept us for his sake and hear us and heed us and bless us that we might be those who more and more see our need for Christ, as we more and more see our, our sin and what it truly is. Father, grant us to be humbled before you, to acknowledge openly and freely that in ourselves we are condemned and we are fools. It is only in you that we are freed and that we are wise, truly. Grant us this, we pray, more and more. And now do... Hear us as we pray together by the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.